Our next session is going to be led by Matthew Holbrook. Uh, Matthew is one of our elders and um, is very passionate about this topic and knows quite a bit about it. So I hope you will uh, listen attentive to, attentively and uh, enjoy what he has to say. Matthew, come on. Brian says, I'm very passionate about this topic. Um, and the answer would be yes, I am. So um, we'll, uh, we'll see how that, uh, that comes together. There are so many things to address and to say about the topic of abortion and the Bible and how that goes together. Um, I'm not sure that it can all be compressed into a, into a short period of time here tonight. So um, what I would like to do is, uh, is a couple of things. One, um, want to make sure that you know that there's some resources available to you in the back. Uh, this is an excellent book by Randy Alcorn, uh, Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. Uh, it's extremely helpful, and uh, basically any uh, argument you could uh, encounter or hear in any way regarding a pro-choice choice perspective, there are very practical, scientific, biblical, um, logical arguments that are laid out in, uh, in a very uh, organized way. And so uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to pick one of these up. There are about 30 or 40 copies back there. Um, it's 300 pages or so. So, um, you know, they're free. Take one if you'll actually read it. Um, and we want to make that available to you and make that a resource for you. Um, also, if you're not as much of a reader, basically the whole book is summarized in this little pamphlet. Um, and this is also free. So uh, you can get the highlights in a, uh, a pamphlet like this. So grab this if you want at least the, the highlights, of, highlights of the book and maybe don't necessarily think that you would ever get around to reading the whole thing. So um, those are a couple of resources for you. But what I really want to uh, uh, attempt to do today is to uh, take a big step back and look at this topic from the, uh, the farthest step back and look at God's overall purposes in creation. Uh, take a broad theological perspective. And then I think what will happen as we do that, that all of a sudden we will zero in um, at the end, hopefully, and um, uh, the big questions and practical implications uh, just start falling off the tree, if you will. Um, they become very apparent and, uh, and easy to follow. So uh, that's the approach we're going to take here. So uh, taking a big step back, I just want to make some broad theological statements and back them up a little bit, and then we'll gradually narrow in on this, on this topic. But we start off with a perspective of God, and we start with the perspective that God is eternally happy. Uh, God is eternally happy. Uh, this means that in eternity past, God existed, and God was happy. God was content. God was without need for anything. We see the Bible starting with the statement, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was God. There wasn't anything else. Uh, God was eternally happy. Um, God does not gain anything by creation. Nothing is added to God because of creation. Uh, Seth, God is not any happier because you were born. Uh, God is as happy as he would ever possibly be and nothing that is created or born or has been added in any way contributes to make God's happiness any greater than it already was. And there's lots of verses we could go to on this, but just to make that 
point simple. Nehemiah 9.5 says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Whatever blessing and praise we can give to God, God's name is already blessed above that. There isn't anything that our blessing and praise adds to God. A.W. Pink said this, There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God, and that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been born, had been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them when he did added nothing to God, essentially. Jonathan Edwards said, The notion of God creating the world in order to receive anything properly from the creature is not only contrary to the nature of God, but inconsistent with the notion of creation, which implies a being receiving its existence and all that belongs to it out of nothing. And this implies the most perfect, absolute, and universal derivation and dependence. Now, if the creature receives its all from God entirely and perfectly, how is it possible that it should have anything to add to God to make him in any respect more than he was before, and so the creator become dependent on the creature? The point is, God was happy, God was content, God did not need anything prior to creation. God doesn't change. There's lots of verses we can go to in that. Um, uh, Micah 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Um, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's traits do not change. God does not have mood swings. God does not get happier or less happy. Um, God manifests all of his attributes perfectly all the time. So we can say he's perfectly happy. At the same time, we can say God is perfectly wrathful. Um, God is perfectly merciful. God is perfectly loved. God is perfectly all of his attributes all of the time. That's why he's God, and Russell is not. Russell cannot do all of those things perfectly all of the time. God does. So God is eternally happy. Secondly, God is love. The most basic level of understanding of the essence of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth uh, is not in us. Um, that is not the verse that I was looking for. Um, but First John four sixteen says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is, by definition, love. It's his essence, and it, it and, uh, exists within the, the nature of who he is. Within the scope of the Trinity, we see inner Trinitarian love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, God is love. God is relational. There is a love between the, the Father and the Son that is unique, and we see this exposed in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Um, we see in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the Son has lived in eternity in the bosom of the Father, in, in a close, intimate relationship with the Father. There is this, this essence of God that God is love. So God is eternally happy, and God is love, and we'll just keep building on this. God is also righteous. I'll read a bunch of verses for you. They'll all pop up on the screen. I haven't scanned forward at all, have I? Uh, 
Psalm 119, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 48, as your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. And you'll see the other verses laid out there. I think you get the idea that God is righteous. So we build this case. God is eternally happy. God is love. God is righteous. The next point is that God's glory is the highest value in the universe. God's glory is the highest value in the universe. And we don't have time to develop this massive subject in all that there is there tonight. But the whole point of salvation points to that, that reality. Ephesians chapter 1, 5 and 6 say, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. The whole point of our salvation to him predestining us to salvation is that we would praise the glory of his grace. God's glory is the representation, the, the summation of all that he is. Um, and uh, his glory is the highest value of all that is in the universe. If God is righteous, it means that he treats everything rightly as it deserves to be treated. It means he treats everything in proportion and in the context of its value. If God's glory is the highest value in the universe and God is righteous, then God must treat his glory as the highest value in the universe. He must treat himself as the highest value in the universe. Um, and so his glory trumps everything else in all that God does. And so we see that God is eternally happy, God is love, God is righteous, and God's glory is the highest value in the universe. Now you may be wondering, how does all this fit together and what does it have to do with abortion? I would argue that has everything to do with this subject because if God is love, love requires an object. If God is righteous, then God must uphold his glory over all things. God is love, there is love within the Trinity, but God is is definitionally a creative God, and that is an expression of both his love and of his glory, and he puts those together and maintains perfect righteousness. We see the Bible starts with Genesis 1-1, which says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's our introduction to God. God is a creative God. We are, uh, we are introduced to Jesus in John, uh, in John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So God is a God of love, and that love needs an object. If there's going to be love, the love has to be poured out on something. And so God is a creative God, and God's creation is created and ultimately becomes an object of God's love. But God is a righteous God, and his glory must be over all things. So even though God loves, God must uphold his glory over all. And, and how does all of this get put together. God has always, from eternity past, designed a plan in which he would create objects of his love with the purpose of displaying his glory forever. Let me say that again. That starts to tie this together. God has, from eternity past, designed a plan in which he would create objects of his love with the purpose of displaying his glory for eternity. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image. God's image is in every human being ever conceived, ever created, and it's for the purpose of displaying his glory, which must be the highest value in the universe. And so God maintains his righteousness by creating all things, and especially human beings, to display his glory at the very highest level. He's righteous in doing that, and he creates human beings that he will show the ultimate love towards and the ultimate expression of love. God is love. God is, um, God is eternally happy, God is righteous, and God upholds his glory over all things. And so here we are as human beings created, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, cover the earth, human beings, cover the earth, cover the earth with my glory so that the whole earth declares the glory of God, and all of God's creation does that, but human beings do that in a different way than any other kind of creation because human beings bear the image of God. We are image bearers of God, and we declare God's glory by reflecting his image on this earth. And God continues to do that. David wrote in Psalm 139, "'For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made.'" Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God forms human beings in their mother's womb, and God declares the end from the beginning for every person's life and knows every intimate detail about every person before they're conceived. And God creates them at, at, at conception. And, and it's all created in it, that we're all created in his image and reflecting his image and proclaiming the glory of God. And so the image of God is the heart of the gospel. The image of God goes to the heart of the gospel. The image of God reflects the glory of God as people created in God's image and cover the earth with his image. Now, the image of God was contaminated with the fall, with sin, but it wasn't lost. Man fell, Adam and Eve sinned. That image of God was contaminated and, and, and sin contaminated the earth. But we know that in, uh, in Romans uh, 1, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth. So that, that truth is in us, and that's, that's part of the image of God, of knowing right from wrong. Um, in, in Romans 2, we see that the law of God is written on our hearts, that there is this, this image of God remains even, even uh, in spite of the fall and um, Romans 3 continues and says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of reflecting the glory of God by being image bearers as God originally created 
people to be. That sin, sin came and, and infected that image and, and contaminated that image. And so we remain image bearers, but we don't reflect that image as we once did or as Adam once did in, in, the, uh, in the creation. And we fall short of reflecting God's glory, but that image is still there. So what happens in the gospel? What happens in the gospel? That, that image is restored. Jesus, God in the flesh, goes to the cross, pays the price for our sin, absorbs the wrath of God, and in so doing, he purchases for himself a redeemed people. He purchases new hearts for us, and those hearts respond to God, and they, they respond to him um, to want to love him and to follow him. And, and what's the result of that, of that new heart? I couldn't go through this without hitting Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conform, become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So the whole point of salvation, of what was accomplished at the cross, was to save a people and to glorify them, to bring them to glorification, what it says here in verse 30 of Romans 8. And bringing us to glorification, what it tells us in, in, uh, in verse 29, is that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus, being God in the flesh, we're, we're restoring the image of God as it was originally intended to be. That image of God is being restored through the gospel. And then what happens when, when the image of God is, is restored? We, the, the image of God, we as, we as believers, as, as, uh, as gradually growing in our image bearing, that's what sanctification is, to the point of glorification, where, we'll, where we will perfectly, again, reflect the image of God. As we grow in that, we have the promise of God that we become the object of all of God's supportive power and love. In, uh, in Romans 8, 31, uh, he says, uh, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It's another way of saying God is righteous. You ever look at that verse? We sing this song sometimes in, in church, and we're, we, sing, we sing the song, uh, if, if, if our God is for us, who can be against us, right? If our God is for us, who can be against us? That's another way of saying God is righteous because God is righteous. He treats all things rightly. And the highest value in the universe is his glory. And he upholds his glory over all things. And he redeems a people to bear the image of his glory, to bear his image, to reflect his glory. And so if you are saved, you are saved to have that image restored in you. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? God's, in, God's massive power is centered on us as believers and he will complete the work that he started. He will bring us back to glorification, bring us all the way to glorification, and uh, will restore us fully in the image that he intended for us to be. And that's why Paul can say, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's another way of saying God is righteous. He is going to uphold his image bearers. He's going to bring us to the point of glorification where we will fully be restored in reflecting the image of God again. And then for us as believers, the image of God is what gains us access to his glory. The, the image of God gains us access to his glory. Um, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. How? Did I leave out the blameless part? That's the most important part. Let me try it again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless. There we go. The high schoolers are supposed to, to get that. Um, with great joy. That's my favorite part. We get to be in the presence of God with great joy. I like the great joy part. But what gets us into the presence of God is being blameless. What makes us blameless is being conformed to the image of Jesus, which is being restored to the image of God, which we were originally created to do, which is the glory of God being reflected on the whole earth. The image of God then brings us to the throne of God to worship him, praising his glory forever. If you want to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And starting in verse 8, I'm just going to kind of pick this up midstream, but it says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. When we're restored to the image of God, that's what's in store for us, that we praise and worship Jesus with everything in us at the highest heights of joy. The image of God is at the heart of the gospel. And the father of lies, Satan, distorts people's understanding and confuses the issue so that God's image is rebranded as an elective body part of a woman so that this body part can be disposed of by a choice to do so. But an unborn baby is not a body part. An unborn baby is an image bearer created by God in the womb for his glory to be loved by God and we are to be like God and we are to love his glory and we are to defend his glory. So the deliberate extinguishing of the image of God is not a matter of a neutral choice or simply a political controversy. Rather, it's an act of war against the ultimate purposes of the God of the universe. Consider the conception of Jesus. You can turn your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we'll look at uh, verse 31. And I want to just reiterate when life begins. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 31. The angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. 
And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Stop right there. She conceived a son. She didn't give birth to a son. It's not a son because she gave birth to a son. It is a son because she conceived a son. This is a son who's not yet born. And the angel is telling Mary that Elizabeth has conceived a son. Not conceived a body part, not conceived a fetus, but has conceived a son. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. How did Mary go? In a hurry. So she left right away. And she went to a hill country, to a city of Judah. It's estimated that it probably took her about a day to get there. So she sees the angel. She takes off, goes to see Elizabeth, probably takes about a day to get there, and enters the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Who's the baby? John the Baptist. How old is John the Baptist? Conceived six months before. So here we have a six-month-old conceived baby, not yet born, leaping in the womb in the presence of Jesus. That's a life. But what might blow your mind even more was how old was Jesus when John responded and leaped in the womb? Conceived one day. Jesus was conceived for one day. And he comes into the presence of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, at six months, leaps in the womb for great joy. If we deny that life starts at the moment of conception, we deny the incarnation of Jesus. So when we talk about when does life begin, the answer to that question goes to the very heart of the gospel. It goes to who Jesus is. John the Baptist recognized the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb, even when Jesus had only been conceived a day before. Abortion says, my life for yours. But Jesus says, Jesus says, my life for your life, even if you have killed your own child. Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, has come to bear the penalty that we deserve. And he came in the flesh as a baby, conceived at one day, causes John to respond and to rejoice, and then he grows up and lays down his life for us. And when people have an abortion out of convenience, they're saying, my life is more important than the life of the baby. And Jesus comes and makes himself, humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we can be saved. And the, the beauty of that is Jesus died on the cross for the very women who have abortions. Jesus died on the cross for the very men who encourage their wives, girlfriends, whoever it might be, to have abortions. Jesus gave his life for the people who are taking lives to benefit themselves. When we put this all together, we should start looking at some of the, the fundamental questions that are raised in this discussion. And as I said at the beginning, it kind of all just falls off, right? I mean, you just, the answers become pretty apparent. A fetus is not a potential human being like an acorn is a potential oak tree. A fetus is an image bearer of God Almighty, created by God in the womb 
predestined before the foundation of the world for his eternal purposes. If you make the statement that a, a fetus at, at, the, at its early stages doesn't qualify to be a human life because it's too early in its developmental stage or it's not big enough or it's not developed far enough, those kinds of arguments begin to sound silly when we understand the, this, we, we understand human life in the context of, of God's overall purposes. Something non-human doesn't become human by getting older and getting bigger. Whatever is human is human from the beginning. And the right to live doesn't increase with age or with size. All of this becomes really self-evident when we understand the purposes of God with regard to human life. Personhood is not defined by size, by skill, by viability. It's not determined by location in the womb, out of the womb, in a home, outside. It's not determined by degree of intelligence. A baby born with the greatest deformities, the greatest disabilities, still maintains the image of God and bears the image of God and is worthy of of a life that brings glory to God and, and reflects the glory of God as any other human being would. Personhood is not determined by life stages. Russell is no more of a human being than Zion. A toddler is not a lesser human being than than any other life stage. And then we come to the comparison of of, um, a mother's rights and her, her right to make a choice compared to a baby's rights. And those are unequal comparisons. It's an unequal comparison between those rights. What's at stake in abortion is a mother's lifestyle. And what's at stake in an abortion for a baby is its life and its ability to reflect the image of God on this earth. People make a big deal over the right to choose. That's a dangerous place to go, just as a side note. Um, Go back and do a little historical reading. Um, Slavery in America was based on the right to choose, the right to choose whether or not you wanted to own a slave. That was the argument in the South. You can choose to own a slave or you can choose not to. My choice is I want to own a slave, but if you think that that's that's wrong, you don't have to. that's, that was the basis of, of the argument of, of slavery. And the basis of all kinds of evil done in our world has often been made in the context of the right to choose. People become concerned about having their choices limited um, and their rights limited, but civilized societies limit, limit rights all over the place. I don't have the right to go up and slap Joe across the face just because I want to. There are, we limit rights all the time and there are consequences to that. Not all things done with a person's body are right or should be permitted. Um, you can say it's my body, I can do with it what I want, but if I go and drink all kinds of alcohol and go get behind the wheel of a car, um, we say that we want to prohibit that right. We limit rights all over the place. Not everything that's done with a person's body is right or should be allowed. But in, we can make all of these arguments, but we come down, it comes down to um, some fundamental things that kind of hit close to home just as we, kind of, uh, as we uh, draw this to a close. Um, pregnancy is not a sin. Pregnancy can be the result of a sin, but pregnancy itself is not a sin. Pregnancy is, is, is the formation of a life. And we have to be able to, to draw those distinctions in culture. We have to be able to say these things are, are, are sinful. Um, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage 
is a sin, and we don't compromise on that. But we can say that and at, at the same time and not say the pregnancy itself, the baby that's there, is not, it's not a sinful baby in the sense of, of uh, that, that the, the actions of the mother and the father are to be, to be brought onto that, uh, that baby. And so somehow we have to wrestle with, as a culture and as, as a church with, with how, do we, how do we celebrate life even in those contexts? How do we still say that it's a sin that leads to that scenario, but yet we can still celebrate and rejoice that that baby is still an image bearer? It still bears the image of God. And, and, um, and how do we, how do we uh, work to cultivate an environment that uh, that, that can still happen, that, uh, that a repentant mother is, is still welcomed into the, uh, into the family of God and we can, we can celebrate and, and, and rejoice over the, the image that is, is created without compromising our, our, our position or, or the, the reality of, of the sin that might have led to a particular situation. We can still say that the, the poor choice of, uh, of sex outside of marriage is never compensated for by the far worse choice of killing of an innocent life. And one person's unfair or embarrassing circumstances don't justify violating the rights of, of another person. Um, so we, we, we put this all together and we understand our priorities. We want to be righteous. We want to treat everything as it deserves to be treated. And human life is to be treated at the at the highest value out of all of God's creation because God is the highest value. He is um, he is the ultimate standard, and he's created human life to reflect him, to reflect his image, and so we are to protect it in, in every situation, and we are to cultivate an environment where, where that is celebrated and exalted and, and lifted up, not because of the life of the, of the human being necessarily, but because it reflects the image and the glory of, of the creator, and that's what we want to point to.